thank you that those are not simply the words of a song. They're the truth of what the scriptures tell us. We thank you for the reminder today that we have been saved by Christ's death on our behalf. And that because he died for us, that the penalty of sin, the wrath of God, has been replaced on us by the love and forgiveness of Christ, the right standing that Christ has before the Father. We thank you for that truth today. May it never get old. May it always be shocking. And may it always inspire us to live lives of obedience to you. We would pray that um, after we hear what you would tell us in your word and we take the Lord's Supper together and we're sent out, that we would live this week in those realities and share that message with people around us who are in need of hearing it. Phoenix is full of people who have yet to hear the gospel and place belief and trust in you. And we know that it's only that that can save. And so we pray that you'd give us boldness this week as we go to work, as we live in our apartments and homes, as we're with our friends and family to share that message faithfully and to live in a way that's consistent with it, not by our own strength, but by the power of Christ within us. And now as we look to see that message in your scriptures, we pray that you teach us. And we do pray for the eight of our brothers and sisters who are in Scotland who have already worshipped with the church in Nidri today and are preparing for their ministry this week that you'd give them great effectiveness and fruitfulness and that they'd come back and be changed as a result of their experience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good to see you today. Um, If you were... Not with us. Last week we started a new series in a book called John and uh, 1 John. Thank you. And we will continue that on today. Um, I have a a large uh, boot on my leg so everyone can stare at it and get it out of the way, okay? There it is. It's, um, I think, weighs as much as the rest of my body. I tore my Achilles tendon because I wanted your attention and your oohs and ahs. So do I have them? Yes, thank you. Fantastic. Now we can move on. All right, so last week we began um, looking at the introduction to a little book called First uh, John. And uh, today what I'd like to do is take a step back from that book in particular and sort of fill in the details for you on who that man was and why it's worth considering what he has uh, to say. So that's what we'll do this morning. To get us there, just an introductory question for you. Uh, Is there something about you that you know needs to change? Is there something that you're aware just isn't the way God would have it to be? Now, I'm not going to ask you to volunteer that to the person sitting next to you, but just to think about. Maybe it's the attitude that you have towards people who are not like you. Maybe it's your temper. You've blown up yet again this last week and are reminded of the fact that there is something there. Maybe it's the chronic overspending that you've found yourself doing again. Maybe it's the daydreaming about being with someone. Maybe it's the way you treat your parents. Is there there's something about your life that you're aware needs to be different? Well, to be human and live in a fallen world is to be a human being in need of change. So 
Yes, there is something like that. It's just, are you aware of it or not? Do we really find ourselves being people who hope that we can change? Or have you somewhere along the way lost that hope? Maybe there's been attempts at change, but it didn't really pan out the way you wanted it to. How many times have you said, uh, that was the last time I'll ever do that? Or, I'll never. Or, it's over. Or, this year's going to be different. Or, God, I'm really serious this time. Maybe like me, you've had the experience of saying those things, of making those declarations, only to find that things really didn't change. Well, religious self-discipline won't produce lasting change. Merely trying harder won't produce change. Uh, Going about it a different way probably won't produce change. But real change is possible. There is a way that we can become different people. There is a hope of change. Today I'd like to take the disciple John, who wrote 1 John, as exhibit A, if you will, for the truth that the Bible would give us, that change is possible, that things can be different. And so if you would, in your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 1, and we'll look at a couple of different moments in Mark's life together, and hope that as we look at those changes, we can find that change is possible for us. If you don't have a Bible in the back at the coffee bar on the left, there are a number of Bibles. You're welcome to get up and get one and take that home for you. Now, before you would assume that someone who wrote the majority of the New Testament, so John wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. He wrote the, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. So those books don't comprise the, the most number of books, but they have the most amount of material in them. So it might be that some of us would assume the person that wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else certainly always had it together. And God just picked someone who had a life that always exhibited godly behavior. But I'd like to show you why that may not be the case. So Mark chapter 1, and here we're going to see the very initial instances where we find John in the gospel. So John, Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, this is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were both mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus asked John to become his disciple. And it's it's easy reading the story to kind of think maybe this was the first time he'd ever seen Jesus, and he just immediately, miraculously dropped his nets because he got some special message from heaven and gave up everything to follow Jesus. But a closer reading would show that's not what happened. Um, There's... There is an argument to be made that John and Jesus were cousins. They were related. So probably what had happened is John many, many, many times had heard Jesus teach. He had seen him even do miracles. He was familiar with the message that he came to share. He knew this man, Jesus, lived a life that honored the Father. And so when the invitation came, 
Of course he went for it. Of course he was quick to jump on and say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to learn your way of life and learn to live like you. Let's put it in our context today. Imagine someone you really respected that you had observed that lived a godly life came to you and said at their initiation, hey, I want to teach you what the scriptures say. I want to invite you into my home. I'd love for you to live the way we live in order that you could know the Father like I know the Father. Most of us would jump at that kind of opportunity, wouldn't you? Okay, at least one or two or three. Uh, We would take that. We would say, yes, I want to spend massive amounts of time with you and learn from you because we're people who are aware of the fact that we need to change, even if we may be reticent to admit that. Friends, there's always a cost to follow Jesus. John walked away from his family business. He left immediately. He trusted God with his future. The particulars are different today, but the essence of following Jesus is the same. To, to sign up to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, is to give up control to King Jesus, trusting his death to save us and his life to empower us to learn to live a different way. Being a disciple meant that John went everywhere Jesus went. He learned from him. He lived with him. He ate with him. He did all of life with him. He agreed to take on Jesus' way of life, not simply to gather once a week and hear his message. So just a comment quickly about discipleship. We're all disciple makers. If, if we've signed up to follow Jesus, then we've signed up to be a disciple maker. To call yourself a Christian is to say you've been encountered by the love and forgiveness of God to such a degree that now you're spending your life seeking to share that message with others and to encourage those who have yet to hear it and to embrace in an ongoing way those who already have and have committed to be part of the same church family. To say I'm a Christian and not give your life to those tasks is to leave me confused because that's what the scriptures say a Christian is. And so we can't reduce discipleship to a one-hour meeting every week at Starbucks or sitting next to a friend one hour on Sunday mornings. It takes life on life. Some of the most important spiritual conversations you'll ever have will take place outside of this room. They'll take place washing dishes or riding in a car or going to the grocery store together or helping a cripple along in the airport That was an invitation. I have to go tomorrow. One of you is welcome to help me. (laughs) Don't discount the power of living with gospel intentionality in the stuff of everyday life. That's what Jesus was inviting John to do, to live life with him. So keep gathering together at Starbucks. Read through books of the Bible together. Just don't stop there. Keep bringing friends along to church and investing in them in that way. Just don't stop there. Learn to see all of life, everything you do every day, as where God's placing you in order to make disciples for that particular day. So that's what John did. He became one of Jesus' followers. Now, did Jesus pick John because John was already mature? Now, just hold that thought for a minute. Peter, James, and John, as the story would go, If you would take the time today to read through the rest of Mark, what you'd find is that Peter, James, and John became Jesus' closest three friends. They were 
with him at the most important moments that took place throughout the Gospels. This incredible moment when Jairus' daughter was brought back to life. Those three were there, nobody else. When Jesus was praying on the mountain and the transfiguration took place, those three were there, nobody else. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Logan preached on a few weeks ago. Didn't he do a great job, by the way? Where is he? Is he here? Kitchen. He's in the kitchen. Good. Then when, when Jesus was there and he was broken in prayer, unlike a time ever before in his existence, those three were there. Time and time and time again, we see Jesus with those three. And if you fast forward in the story even further, after Jesus died and was resurrected and he sent out the disciples, they, they went with the message of the gospel. And John outlived them all. He was the only, church history would tell us, the only disciple that wasn't martyred for his faith. And by the time he wrote First John, he was an old man. And there's a story, it may be um, mythical, it's probably true, though, because it represents where he was and when he would have been there. There's stories of him past the point of being able to walk. He would be carried by people up to the front of the church that gathered in Ephesus. And he's quoted as saying, my little children love one another, love one another, love one another. That to the very end, that's what he said. Well into his 90s, love each other, love each other, love each other. Now you'd think that someone who was invited into those kind of moments with Jesus, who was one of only 12 commissioned to go out and plant churches, who lived and was entrusted with that message longer than any of the other apostles, who to his last days was saying, love, love, love. You'd think that guy always had it together. You'd think God picked him because he could be entrusted because he was already walking well with God but not so fast. You see, Jesus would tell us that John was not always the good old boy we picture him being. In fact, he didn't come from a Christian home. He didn't go to a Christian school. He wasn't in church every time the doors were opened. We think that people that are going to be used by God are those who have never done drugs or gone to parties or had doubts or slept around, that they were never people in need of change. But in reality, nothing could be more incorrect see, the ones that God uses the most are the ones who need the most change. They're the ones who've experienced God's grace in the greatest ways. So I'd like to consider with you the raw material that Jesus had to work with by looking at just three moments in John's life. We won't turn there because there's a, there's a lot of different scriptures I'd like to show you. But listen to this one from Mark 9. Okay, here's just one glimpse of John a little bit further in the Gospel of Mark. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. So John, little tattletale Johnny, goes to Jesus and says, That one's not in our little group. So I told him, stop it. Don't be helpful to that other person because you're not in the clique. 
He's not in, he's not in the in crowd. He hasn't stayed with us and traveled with us and listened to me talk, Jesus, so he must not be from you. That sounds a lot like pride and arrogance and intolerance. Now, the second glimpse is even more clear. This comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Let me read it, and then I'll explain what was going on. When his disciples, James and John, saw it. Now, what's the it? Jesus is late in his ministry at this point. He's traveling from the northern part of Israel down through an area called Samaria in order to get to Jerusalem, where eventually he would be crucified. So they're on that journey together. And if uh, you've read the scriptures, you may have picked up on the fact that ethnicity was pretty important at this point in history. And the Jews didn't want much to do with the Samaritans. So they're traveling through this area and the Samaritans wouldn't let Jesus stay there because he was going on to Jerusalem. So that's not a big deal for us, right? Somebody knocks on your door. You're probably not going to let them in and invite them to spend the night and have dinner with you. Correct? Most of us wouldn't do that. But in this culture, if someone stopped and said, would, can I spend the night? It was common courtesy that you would have done that. You would have prepared a nice meal. You would have given them your bed. Hospitality was very, very high on the list of cultural norms. But they said, no, if you're going to Jerusalem, we don't want to have anything to do with you because that means you're going down there where the Jews are. So that's what was going on. Now, look what James and John do in response. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So in other words, Jesus, because they won't give us dinner and somewhere to sleep, then how about we rain down fire from the sky so their bodies can burn in hell forever? I've made people mad before, but I don't think quite that mad. Does that sound like the apostle of love to you? Does that sound like the old man sitting in Ephesus, carried in front of the church, saying, little children, love each other, love each other, love each other? No, this is vengeance. This is arrogance. This is ethnic hostility. It's racial hatred. Do you ever find yourself to be an angry person? Do you easily blow your top? Does hatred for people who harm you mark your reaction to them? Well, if so, there's hope for you. You don't have to always be that way. It's possible that your innate internal desire and response to things would become love, not hatred. Now, let's take the third glimpse. It's my favorite. This comes from Mark 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do, you do, you do not know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Now, there's a lot there we could talk about. It's pretty plain, his attitude. So, first of all, how about the request? Teacher, um, or the demand, rather. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus, you're here to serve me. Jesus, I've heard all that stuff you've been teaching about servanthood and sacrifice and denying yourself, taking up your cross and following you. But we want you to do for us what we want. So can you do that? How often does that reflect our prayers? But then how about the request? Let us sit in the places of highest honor and power next to you. So in their mind, Jesus was becoming the king of Israel. He was the Messiah who would overthrow Rome and rule on his throne. And where did they want to be? Right next to him. In this culture, to sit on your right and your left would be to say, you, you are the second in command. You are the next most important people. Everyone will bow to not only me, but bow to you. So not a lot of humility. The pride and the arrogance are incredible. Doesn't even sound like the same person, does it? So how is it that a man could go from prideful arrogance to gentle love? How does that happen? Is there something in your life you'd really like to see become different? Are you aware that you're broken? My friend, the message of the gospel is that God changes people, that God is deeply committed to life change, and that your life becoming different doesn't happen by you trying harder. It doesn't happen by self-effort. It doesn't happen by cleaning yourself up. It doesn't happen by behaving better. It doesn't happen through taking on better ethical or moral standards. It doesn't happen by giving more money to the church or coming here more often or signing up to serve in the nursery. None of those things will take the deep change that's necessary in order for somebody like John to come from arrogance to love or from you in whatever it is that you may be struggling with to a life that looks Christ-like. John became a loving man because he was encountered by the love of God. Now, his personality didn't change. In fact, in the coming weeks, you will find that John's nickname... So, one place in the Gospels say John and his brother were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Now, those of you that have been around a while know Bill is a fan of wrestling. Right, Bill? So doesn't that sound like a wrestling name? Sons of Thunder! Now, John was called that for a reason. He had a big, boisterous, loud personality. And that part of John didn't go away completely. So John's going to tell us some things in 1 John that are going to feel like you got in the WWF wrestling ring. You're going to feel beat up, knocked over, and bloodied. John is incredibly confrontive in the book of 1 John. But it's tempered with grace. 
and peace and love. And it's told not to elevate himself, but to invite you to experience the love that God has for you. So the motive behind is radically different. The, the care extended is radically different. But the fundamental personality wasn't altered. It's not as though God, when he invades our life and saves us and gives us his power, somehow changes our personalities completely. Rather, it's that he reforms them. He makes them Christ-like. He chisels away the parts of them that are motivated by pride and selfishness and enables us to, to be more human, to really love each other well. The arrogance and pride and selfishness and harshness that were in John's personality were chiseled away by God. John became a loving man because he encountered the love of God. And you can hear things like that when he speaks in 1 John. So 1 John 1, 8 and 9 say, If we confess, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's pretty direct, isn't it? But look at the next phrase. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, John became aware that he was a man who had sin and he needed to confess it in order that he could find the faithful and just forgiveness of God. But how exactly did that happen? Some of us in the room today are painfully aware of our inability to change ourselves. Painfully aware of it. Maybe your issue is not that you tend to call on God to smite your enemies with fire from the sky. Maybe you're not arrogant before God, begging Him to give you a place of importance and prominence. Instead, maybe it's things that are more subtle. Maybe you've become deeply bitter. Maybe you battle severe distrust and anxiety. Maybe you can't keep your eyes off women. Maybe you're chronically addicted to what people think of you. Maybe getting an A in school is the most important thing to you. Maybe you've blown your top yet again. To be human is to be a person in need of change. And change that you cannot accomplish on your own. Because the the problem is we have sick, dead hearts that have to be exchanged by God for new hearts. John's life, from the arrogant punk to the author of the majority of the New Testament, screams out to us today, there is hope. God can change you. There's life in Jesus. So if I could make it more personal, if you had seen me at 12, 13, 14, 15, you would be running for the hills. I was a massively selfish, arrogant, insecure kid. I didn't believe a word of the Bible was true. I had massive doubts about God's existence. And the height of my arrogance was shown in my uh, ability to get permanently expelled from Tennessee public schools as a freshman in high school. They said, you are not allowed to come back at all, ever. That takes skill, I would have you. (laughs) By the time I was 16, I'd already attempted suicide and spent more time in counselor's offices than anywhere else. 
I was a messed up kid. It had nothing to do with the home I was in. God put me in a godly home with wonderful parents. But I was busted on the inside. And I did everything I could to make a fool of myself to try and make myself feel better about that. What changed me? The same thing that changed John. John was changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where he saw the life-giving love of God on display. And I am a person that's changed and am still being changed by the resurrection of Jesus. You see, Jesus claimed not just to be a good teacher. He claimed not just to be uniquely anointed by the Father to do good ministry. He claimed something far beyond that. And if it's true, it changes everything. But if it's not true, then he's just a lunatic and a liar. You see, Jesus claimed to be eternal God. He claimed to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed to be the one upon whom every person's eternal destiny rests. But then he died. Wicked men nailed him to a cross. His own people rejected him. He was condemned and suffocated to death, hanging naked on a bloody wooden cross. So he made these incredible claims that are far greater than what we tend to hear Jesus making in the way we hear him talked about today. And then he died. So John had put all of his hope in someone who said, the fate of every person rests upon me. And then he died. That's a bit of a downer, right? Now, unless... Perhaps you're here today and you've never heard the gospel. You never heard the main message of the church. That's part of it. And the rest of it is the news that he didn't stay dead. Would you look at John chapter 20 with me? And we will spend a few minutes reflecting together on what we see there as we consider what changed John and what can change you. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, so the place where Jesus had been placed, dead. She came there early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. It's John's way of talking about himself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now notice that her first assumption isn't what? They had no filter for that dead person three days later is going to come back. No one was looking for that. No one expected that. Verse 3, so Peter went with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You can tell these are two men, right? You have to get that detail in there. I can run faster than Peter. But stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloth laying there, 
but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came and followed him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes laying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, he had to throw that in, also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. Everything Jesus claimed to be and to do was proven in that moment. Death didn't conquer him. Rather, it was the means by which his goals could be accomplished. John saw and he believed. Now look at the end of this chapter, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs which, in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, notice very carefully what John is saying here. He's saying the order works this way. Evidence, belief, life. Evidence, belief, life. How can you become a person that changes? It's the same way that John did. He saw evidence. He put his belief And then he received life. Let me just talk you through those. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Evidence. For John, all of Jesus' miracles, of which the resurrection was the greatest, prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Did you know that Jesus wasn't the only person historically who claimed to be the Messiah? There's actually a whole bunch of them. Even people in the same period of time. Did you know since then that there have been other people who claimed to be the deliverer, who claimed to have a message from God? Now, what's different about them than Jesus? Jesus is alive. They're dead. That's the proof. So for John, when Jesus died, his faith died. But when he saw him alive, when he saw evidence that what Jesus had said was true, was true, then he believed. He was an eyewitness to what took place. They prove that his words are gospel words. They prove that what Jesus said about heaven and hell are right. They prove that forgiveness of sin and peace with God reside in the person of Jesus Christ. So often, faith is spoken of today as though it's a blind leap in the dark. It is not that. Please don't have that kind of belief because that kind of belief won't last because it's not real belief. Belief is not a simple, maybe it's true and I'll plunge in and see what happens. Belief is based on evidence. Now, John had a different experience than what you and I can have, right? John physically went to the empty tomb. He saw Jesus hanging on the cross with his own eyes. 
he saw the linen cloths that had wrapped his body laying there in the empty grave. We don't have that same opportunity, but we have the record that it happened. We have the historical documents given in order that we could believe. If you're here today and you're unsure about Christianity, our invitation to you isn't check your brain at the door. Instead, it's explore the testimonies. Seek out why the Bible's worth depending on. Is it internally consistent? Are there lots of copies of it? How close are those copies to the original writings? Is there a way to fashion them together in such a way that we know what the original one said? Were these the stories of one person supposedly handing them the message from an angel in a language they didn't understand? Did this spring up quickly and spread? Study the history. Look at the facts. Are the places mentioned places that have been discovered? We would invite you to consider those things. Study the Bible. Examine history. We think what will happen is you'll be persuaded by the evidence just like John was. So John said, I've written these things so that you would believe. That's what comes next. Verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Belief is both mentally acknowledging that what the Bible says is true is true and actively placing your faith and trust in it. It's both. It's, it's saying, yes, I believe those things happened and because that's true, everything else is different. No longer am I in charge of my life. I submit to you, God. You're the only one that can do that and so I turn from the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me in order that I could have a new life. And that's that last part, life. This is the key. Let me just read 31 to you again. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is this Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. When we see the truth claims of Jesus evidenced by the resurrection, and we believe that Jesus came, died, and rose again, we turn from our sin to God, then we get life. And from that life springs change. Right? Friends, that's how change happens. God's love forgives us of our failures. God's presence invades us and gives us new power. And so there is the possibility of change. How does it happen? Evidence, belief, life. So I'd ask you in closing, if you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ, there's never been a moment in time where you came to examine the evidence, believe it, place your trust in Christ, and receive life from Him. I would ask you, do you yet have sufficient evidence? Are you convinced? If so, what are you waiting for? Trust Him today. There's no fancy words or procedures you have to follow. You can just actively yourself tell God, I believe Jesus came, died, rose again. 
And the change that John saw in his life, I need. And I invite you to come in and change me. And if you don't yet have sufficient evidence, look into it further. Find someone that would study with you. We would love that opportunity. We don't believe, ultimately, that we can persuade you. We can try, but God has to open your heart. And so we'd love the opportunity of presenting that with you and becoming your friends. And then to those of us in the room that are Christians, are you relying on God's life in you or are you attempting to change yourself? It's very possible to invite the life of Christ in you to be forgiven and to be tapping into your own power instead of God's in order to try and change. Don't do that. God's power is available to you ongoingly, not just in the moment you accept Christ, but forever. Change comes by admitting we can't change ourselves and casting ourselves on trust, faith, hope in God. So I'd invite you to take a couple of moments in prayer and consider the ways in which God would have you respond to his word today. God, we thank you that the message that we've talked about today is true. We thank you that it's true, not because I've said it, but because your word plainly teaches it. There is tremendous evidence outside the Bible to give us confidence that what's in the Bible is dependable. We can put faith and trust and hope in it. I pray today, especially for anyone who is not yet a believer, that God, they would take the time to explore the evidence and to look at the historicity of what we've talked about. We pray, Father, that you would save them. I pray if there's anybody here today who is persuaded but as yet to act, that nothing would prohibit that, that, God, they would respond even now. And, Father, for my brothers and sisters who have already responded to that message, we thank you that you have forgiven us. We thank you that Jesus, his death has been counted as our death and his life has been given to us. And so today we remember it together. And we give you great thanks. 
and we say we want to be people whose lives are increasingly reflecting Christ-likeness. And that we would be satisfied with no sin. And that anything that's harmful to us and harmful to other people and falls short of what your word teaches, we would turn from and turn to you. And by trusting in you, not by self-effort, but by giving up yet again, we would find your life and your power present in us. We thank you that you offer us that and that that is reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.